Welcome to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Joyous conversations about what the afterlife evidence and modern science combine to tell us is true about our one reality. You have nothing to fear. You are eternal and you are perfectly loved. Knowing the truth changes everything. Now, here's Roberta. Welcome to Seek Reality. I'm Roberta Grimes and I'm really glad you're with us today. This is going to be fun. The primary focus, as you know, of my research over the first few decades of my life was the afterlife. And the evidence for that was so abundant and so consistent that in little more than a decade of doing really part-time research, I had pieced together and confirmed what is in fact an amazing greater reality of which everything we think of around us here is just a tiny, tiny part. You and I know for certain that for everyone, life goes on. It's eternal. It is literally impossible to kill your mind. And we have many reports about what dying looks and feels like from those who have been through it. So, to be frank, I have never paid much attention to what dying is like for those who are going through it now. Many people have asked me about it, actually, because a lot of people worry about it. Many say they don't mind dying, even if they aren't certain about what comes next, but they do fear the suffering that can be a part of getting there. But we know the death rate is 100%. We're all going to get there. Therefore, we really ought to be spending a little time talking about what that process actually is. That's going to be our topic today. We have a wonderful guest who's an expert, an expert on the process of dying. Our guest today is Dr. Jeff Spies. Dr. Spies is the author of what's called, I love this title, Dying with Ease, A Compassionate Guide for Making Wiser End-of-Life Decisions. It's a shortish book. It's not very long. It's easy to understand, very, you know, the larger print, very well written. And he has, he has spent his whole medical career with people who are confronting death as an, first an oncologist and then as a hospice physician. By now, Dr. Spies is a recognized leader in the field of afterlife, end of rather, end of life care. I'm so used to saying the word afterlife, end of life care. Dr. Spies has observed through extensive clinical experience and conversations with the dying and their loved ones the added burden of distress that comes from the American tendency, actually, I think it's a general Western tendency, to avoid facing death as inevitable. So we just try to ignore it. Dr. Spies' book is great. It's brief, it's frank, it's gentle, it's full of useful information. Actually, until I read it, I never had thought about how important it is for the dying to have real and solid information. I mean, you're going to go through this once. You don't get to practice. And you need to have the best possible advice so you can make the best possible possible situation of the end of your own life, too. You, yes, we know where we're going. But we want to get there, and, and I can tell you stories about people who have made a very big point of how they get there. They want the best possible start to the next life. Boy, if there ever is a time in your life when you want to be in control and empowered, it's as you've, you've begun to enter the process of going home. So, Doctor, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Well, it's an absolute delight. And Roberta, you've kind of said it all already. So I guess maybe we have. I really don't want to talk about elections or COVID here. So, no, okay. no, no, absolutely. No, those are off 
off the menu. Off the now, table. We say nothing here about either of those, both right. because with these are, are um, we have seven years now of, of right. archive, and if we talk about either current topic, uh, it's going to people are going to go huh? Five years from now when they're listening to us. We don't want to do that to them. But more to the point, I never knew there was so much important things, uh, important stuff to say about the process of dying. I really never understood that. You're, I found your book to be a revelation. I really, really enjoyed it. Well, well, thanks, Roberta. And and I learned this all from working with dying people. They just taught me these things. I learned... You know, I I learned how to do opioid prescribing and some techniques and and medication administration and 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 um, how to be a good doc from didactics and lectures and and the education I went through. But I learned about dying from the people who are going through it. Um, and, and and. That was the the point that really is what what led to uh, my book and what what continues to inspire my thinking. Um, well, let, let's talk first about what got you here. I mean, this is not on the top of most people's list of what they want to be when they grow up. I want to be a, doc, a doctor for the dying. What what made you choose this as you got into your medical career? Well, it was an evolution. It was an evolution. I went into um, uh, oncology because when I went through it back in the dark ages of the early 1980s, uh, it was tied to hematology, the study of blood science. And I was fascinated by that. I, I just loved laboratory hematology, and I still think it's way cool. But... <laughs> But I never thought of it that way. But okay, that's good. It really, it really is. It's it's fascinating. It's it's fascinating. Um, but but uh, what you unless you're in an academic center, and even then, it's becoming tougher. Doing laboratory hematology doesn't make a living for you. You got it. And as I said, at the time I went through training, it, the it was tied with oncology because oncology the care of cancer didn't have a home. And because hematologists had treated leukemias and lymphomas, that kind of became the extension into the treatment of cancer. So I got into the field for laboratory science. I stayed in the field because of cancer patients. Uh, the people who were going through this stuff that I was seeing week after week, month after month, uh, and for me, what did it was learning to know them as individuals and, yes. and to develop the relationship with the patient, with the family. I was in a fairly, in a small, in small town, Ohio, um, although it was, it was a college town, Worcester, Ohio. So, so we had a great mix of farmers and professors and just wonderful people. And I learned to love talking about the county fair and talking about their uh, students they were working with and talking about them. And for me, taking care of them, working with them until they died, it just seemed like part of the job. I mean, the most people at that time, and still the case, 
who wait, wait, end up. Let, let's tell people. So this was. So career. this was. Right. So I I started practice in 1987, um, okay. and and um, the uh, okay. So I started practice in 1987, and most of the people who were referred to me with serious cancers kind of didn't see their own doc very much anymore. They were seeing me very pretty often. I didn't necessarily like that because I didn't really want to manage their hypertension and diabetes, oh, but yeah. all, the other uh, stuff. Uh, yeah. all the other stuff, but, but, um, so I became the doc they, they identified with and I, I and cancer patients still primarily identify with their oncologist. No, I take that back. They identify with their oncology nurses. Those yeah, that, that's where that's, that's where true. the connection is. Yes, that's where the connection yes. is. Yeah, I, I yeah. know. I know some patients who who are uh, you know oncology patients, and I that they that seems to be where it is. But let's get into the book. Okay. Uh, you you talk about dying in America as almost like a dirty secret that doctors occasionally do lose the battle to keep people alive, and apparently that that's changing. You say that attitude. It, it, it it is changing and um and that's good and 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 that's i think one of the advantages to that i i'm not thrilled with the compartmentalization of american medicine i i i love the idea of the personal physician who knows me and knows my medicine and oh, yes. and and, oh, and that's kind of i love that yeah, but right. but when you go in the hospital you don't get your doc anymore. You're assigned a hospitalist who then then brings in all the other specialists and, and this kind of stuff. But one thing that the hospitalists have figured out, um, although they didn't initially, but they have figured out, is that maybe because they didn't have the ongoing relationship, that sometimes people die and that's just part of the deal. That's not that it's okay, but that it's it's just part of the deal. Um, so anyway, so yes, that I think it's changing, but, but it's, it's still the case that, um, a lot of doctors still see the death of a patient as a failure. Yes, and I have seen that too. And over and over. A hundred percent. We have a hundred percent death rate and there is never, ever going to be any way to change that. But that's right. So, that's so, right. So what you, you talk about some things that I think are sort of touch on my area too. And one of them that I'd like to just talk about for a minute is you talk about five things of relationship completion oh, that yeah. people who are dying, there are things we, that they need to be respected in doing uh, if, to wrap up their lives. And, and the five things you say, and I thought this is great, forgive me, saying forgive me to people that you hope will forgive you, or I forgive you. I think that's very important. You don't ever want to die if there's anybody that you need to, to forgive, because as we know, as soon as we get there, we'll have forgiven them anyway. Let's do it here. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. I have a list a mile and a half long of people I would want to thank. Finally, I love you. I love you. How many times? Do you know, in my family, every time I speak to anyone on the phone or even very close friends, I always end it with, I love you. Goodbye. If you don't say it and suddenly you die, then you're you're going to say, my goodness, I never told him or told her how important they were to me. And then finally, 
you, you want the opportunity to say goodbye. Um, with my father, when he had his stroke, we kept him at home uh, and had hospice come for the two weeks it took him to die. I'm told it takes about two weeks. And and he had guests all day, every day. Now, he, the man was totally paralyzed on one side. He couldn't talk, but he smiled on one side. For two mm-hmm. weeks, he had people there mm-hmm. who loved him. And he was saying goodbye, and they were saying goodbye. So I thought this was a terrific list. I'm going to tell everybody, this is what you should do. If you find that that you are, um, you know, you're on the glide path, basically, make sure you do these things. Make sure that you wrap up these relationships temporarily. You'll see these people again. But thank you for that. That was beautiful. It, well, you're welcome. It's not original. I have to credit where give credit where credit is due. This was uh, from from uh, a um, peripheral mentor of mine, Ira Bayak, who wrote a wonderful book called Dying Well back in the 1990s. Uh, but the other point that I make about that is is the one that you've made is that yes, it, he didn't make that up as a prescription. You know that you had these five things. He learned it from watching people die and saw that the people who had completed their journey peacefully had done these things. And and so it was the patients that taught him that, just like the patients that taught me. I learned so much that I learned from watching people who ended up with with a peaceful relationship, with a, a peaceful death, and the people that seemed to be suffering and tried to figure out what's going on here. Uh, yes. that that is is so distressing for this person and i get i get that we don't that we're born with a survival instinct and we don't want to die i i get that um uh but there are it is this the living time before death really can make a profound difference, really does make a profound difference in what happens in the last, in that, in that transition. And I am, yes, I, 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 I just, and, and why, why the, and you made the point at the beginning, uh, Roberta, that uh, it's not just Americans, that it's all Westerners. And I, and, and I think that's right. That, but I do think that Americans have more trouble with this yes. than others. And it's and really that, bad here. Yes. And and I think and, and I think part of that is is the American myth that Americans, who we say that we are, um, in 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 our in our founding myth, is we are the the people who can do anything, who can accomplish anything, who are exceptional, who can be in control of everything. Well. Death is not something you can control. And I think that frightens us very much because we don't know what to do with it. We don't know what to do with that. That is so profound. That is so true. There comes a time when you need to let go because ultimately we are not in charge of our next breath. But it's easy for us to forget that. I mean, we're past the period when there were uh, saber-toothed cats hunting us. And we're past the period when, if you've got a cut on your hand, um, infection could kill you. We're past so much. We learn to control, little by little, so much of our lives that ultimately we can con- trick ourselves into thinking that we really are in control when, in fact, we really are not, not of our next breath. So absolutely profound and true. <laughs> but 
But knowing what comes after death helps. That's what many people have found. But all right, let's talk about something which is important. Um, and, and this is just a, a very, very uh, something that many people don't even think about. Advanced directives. Yeah. If you are breathing right now, you are going to die guaranteed at some point, and you don't know when. So to make sure that the people that you have signed the right documents, that you have given the right instructions to your close loved ones, is very important because they may not be able to ask you how you would feel about this or that. Talk about that, doctor. Yeah, it's gigantic. Um, advanced directives are absolutely essential. Um, but, but it's not just the piece of paper. Uh, when my uh, father-in-law was dying last year, um, as, as he was weakening, he had had multiple respiratory infections. And, and my wife sat down with him and was having the conversation about, so next time this comes around, you think, you, what should we think about doing the same thing? Do you want to go over to the hospital? He was in an assisted living facility at the time. And his wife, uh, my mother-in-law, had died two years before. And and he says, well, I signed that paper, remember? Well, that, that piece of paper didn't answer the question uh, because uh, you have to know what advanced directives can do. And just very briefly, uh, the, the two advanced directives that are consistent in every state in the union, although the processes are a little different, but pretty much the same, are the living will. But the living will says specifically says what you would want done if you are terminally ill and unable to communicate or in a persistently comatose state. So, but that, those are very specific. So that was the paper he was thinking about. More important, and that's, that's vital, that's vital. Living wills came in after those of us who, who are in my age group will remember the case of Karen Ann Quinlan back in the 1970s, whose whose parents sued that she could be taken off a ventilator. And, and it was after that that uh, living wills came into force that people could say what they would want in that right. situation. Right. The more right. important advanced directive is the what sometimes is called durable power of attorney for health care or right. my health care power of attorney, my health care proxy, my surrogate decision maker, in which you name a person who can speak for you when you are unable to speak for yourself. And that's really the proviso. Um, and But having that piece of paper is brilliant. It is absolutely necessary. But what most people, and so many people do that when their attorney says, well, you know, you're making out your will, you're going to do your estate planning, we're setting up the tr these trusts. Why don't we do these advanced directives now too? Okay, that's fine. Uh, because it's not really too hard. You fill in some forms. Right. But but the important thing is to talk to that person. Yes. Talk to that person yes. so that they know what you would want. Someone who is given the job as your surrogate decision maker is supposed to choose, make decisions based on what you would want. And if they don't know what you would want, how are they ever going to do that? And it's so important because so so um, if I am my mother's uh, decision maker, 
I'm not. My sister is, but that's a whole different story. Yeah, uh, right. The <laughs> okay, <laughs> she's bad. She's bad. Uh, there, there's a story about that. I've got, but anyway, um, and and the the my mom ends up in the emergency room, and the doc comes up and says, "So, what what do you want us to do with your mother here? What what should be you know how aggressive we should we be? Well, you know, I wasn't a perfect son." And I've got a little guilt and I've done some things my mom didn't probably wouldn't have approved of. And I never told her, well, and now you're asking me if I want to kill my mother. I mean, that's really not a very good feeling. (laughs) No, No, but but if you ask if the question is, what would if your mom was here could tell us what would she want us to do in this situation? Well, now I can be the good boy. I can be the one who honors my mother by making probably the same decision I would have made. It is such a gift to your decision maker that they know what you would want because it's all they're doing is communicating for you in that situation. Um, That's so true. Yeah. One other little point about, about advanced directives is, and, and I didn't realize it until last, my goodness, it was a year and a half ago now. It was pre-COVID. So that's, oh, I'm sorry. This is a, a pan, we're in the time of the pandemic for those in the future who are, who are, who are listening to this. Um, She was in the hospital. She went down for a a couple weeks in Florida and got sick and ended up in the hospital. And I uh, flew down to help uh, my sister down there. And um, before I left, I got my copy of her advanced directives and scanned them and put them in my phone. And that was brilliant because I needed them when we were down there. We we live in Ohio. Mom lives in Ohio. She didn't take her papers with her. um, And I had them with me. So that has taught me what I need to do. And I just realized I haven't done it yet is yes. If, if, Make sure your doctor has a copy. Make sure your hospital has a copy. But but scan a copy in your phone, and it will be with you. Yeah, that's, um, handy. And, that's a good, good yeah, tip. Yeah, yeah. Let, let, let's talk a little bit now about. I, I want to talk about the differences between hospice and hospital. But for uh, f- just quickly, I'd like to talk about. You talk about a good death. What is your definition of a quote good death? Yeah, that it's a tough word because because. It's, it's probably a good dying uh, would be maybe a better word. And I know I, uh, good, I've good thought about that. Since, dying. Since That's fine. A good yeah. process of dying, a good, a good process. I think it is one with integrity in which you are able to be yourself to the extent that you can be through the to, until the end of your life. And that includes something in, in order for that to happen. Some other people need to ha- might need to help. I, as the doc, need to make sure that I've got your symptoms under good control because you can't have a dignified ending and say those five right. things to people if you're writhing in pain or retching into the wastebasket. That's just not, you can't do no. that. No. So that needs to happen. Um, good personal care needs to happen so you're not sitting in a dirty diaper and having a... And um, uh, 
you can have that sense of dignity of 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 being who you are. But I think a good death is is a good dying is one in which you are able to continually continue to be yourself until yes. the end. Yes, and yeah, that's a great summary. Yes. Yeah. So so but and this is something that is reasonable for all of us to want. Um, to be to take control of that period of time, but as you say, the, the the medication has to be managed carefully. You have to make sure that your doctor knows how very and your loved ones know how very important that sense of empowerment really is for you. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I mean, I recall other you know, I, I, a lot of people I know have died. I recall that in some cases the doctor knew best and the doctor really didn't know best. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. it's it's good to make that point. So let's talk now about hospice, which was something that, you know, maybe 25 years ago, people didn't talk about nearly so much, but now they really do. Many people die in a hospital. I I mean, of all the places to die, it seems like really an impersonal, impersonal. I didn't know better when my mother-in-law died, and the first thing they did was put her to sleep, and she died almost immediately. I don't think that was very good because her mind was fine still. So talk about the difference between hospitals and hospice. Hospitals are brilliant for what they do. We, we, in, we have designed a hospital system uh, as technological marvels that, that are intended to cure disease. And, right. and they're amazingly good at that. Um, they are not so good at caring because no. it, 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 caring is a person thing. And and an institution may try and 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 engender that, but it's still hard when you've got you know uh, nurses that work um, you know three three uh, uh, or f- four ten hour shifts a week, and they get uh, and and uh, they get shifted off, and they're reassigned to another floor when they come in, and things. You need a personal uh, a personal touch in or in order to um, in order to feel cared for. Um, is it also true that because the hospital is so good at keeping people alive, if you are ab- if you're terminal, you're going to die within two weeks or something. They don't know how to handle you because we're asking them to shift gears completely into a whole different way of handling your situation. We we are we are and and some have figured it out. I mean, palliative care programs in hospitals are are wonderful. I headed one up for for five years, and 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 the and the with with expertise in symptom management and expertise in um, having the conversations. Um, the 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 hospitals are so good at what they do that well when when i when i was doing hospital based palliative care i thought that the best thing we had to offer was what i called giving structure to the or now what i mean by that is so mom's in the intensive care unit on a ventilator on a dial on dialysis she's kind of holding her own but not really so good and and some things are starting to slip so we're having the family meeting and and we're discussing so do we keep going 
like this with mom and there's but the, the chances are looking less and less good like it's going to work so are we going to keep going with this plan or well or what what does that or look like and if you don't know what that or looks like how would you ever choose it um and so then then the images come up of well, if we don't keep going, then mom's going to be horribly short of breath or, as you described, knocked out so we can't say goodbye to her or whatever. So that I think that this is where hospital-based palliative care programs are really coming into their own to be able to provide that kind of service and also teach, reteach the hospital personnel how to care in, in this situation. Um, uh, you're, you're right. It is, it is a hard, it is a hard, it's, it's a hard transition um, for a hospital to do. So hospices. Okay, talk I'm about sorry. hospices. So what's the big difference there? The big difference is you go to a hospice, they know you are terminal and go, go on from there. I think that, I think this is a brilliant thing that we have in hospice. Right. Hospice is brilliant. And I, uh, I'm, I'm, Obviously a fan, otherwise I wouldn't have done it for all the, the years I did. <laughs> right, but, <there's> point. <laughs> yeah. but hospice is really best thought of as a model of care in which the point isn't that um, you have advanced heart failure or that you have cancer or that you have kidney disease or whatever it is that you have. The point is for hospice is that you are at nearing the end of your life and have problems that are unique to that time of your life. Uh, Dame Cecily Saunders, the saint of a modern hospice movement who developed these ideas in the 1960s in London, um, identified that the big issue with patient people who are dying is what she called total pain, that whether it's physical pain or the spiritual suffering or the emotional pain or the uh, uh, fractured relationships, that there was stuff that needed to happen. And medicine could do some of it, but some of it required counseling, good nursing care, good personal care, good spiritual care, and time, uh, because that healing takes time. Um, so anyway, so she developed this, the idea of hospice as a model of care. In the United States, hospice is defined by governmental regulation. Uh, the Medicare hospice benefit that was passed in the 1980s. And, and this is designed as a home-based, primarily home-based model of care with families as caregivers. And that works most of the time. And it's wonderful most of the time. Yes. Yep. Uh, um, the inpatient hospice units uh, have evolved. It used to be more places to die. Um, the, the home, the home-like ambience and, and wonderful care. And there's still, there's, Still, most inpatient hospices are still wonderful places to go, um, and it does. It's wonderful when there's a family cooking dinner for the everybody and and uh, yes. um, having picnics. It's one. It's wonderful, yeah. yes. but inpatient hospice now is more a, a place for 
aggressive symptom management where pains are out of control. We can't manage things at home. We need to go someplace. You don't want to go back to the hospital because, as we said before, they're good at a lot of things, but this isn't it. This is not one of them. So, And sometimes that um, uh, escalating symptoms or escalating suffering really is the harbinger of the last, that last hours and days of life. So a lot of people do die in inpatient hospice units. Um, uh, anyway, so, but the point is that the, the aim in hospital-based Western medicine is disease management. The aim of hospice care is the person who is dying. And that's the difference. Um, the, we in 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 medicine we assume that if somebody comes in with pneumonia that if i treat the bug if i treat with the the with the right antibiotic and the oxygen and things like that that somehow the person is going to be healed well the pneumonia may well get better but if the if if the pneumonia happened because of a horrible living situation at home right. and you throw them yeah. back in that horrible living situation, you haven't healed anything. Right, oh right. no, I'm going to, I have to watch it. I'm going to get political here. So I'm going to, now I'm going to go down that road. I got to go down. No, that we road. never do. That's the P word. You never want to say that's the P, the P word. word. We're, we're right. never going to do it. No, that's fine. Um, well, I, but I have another question about um, that. This brings up for me. Um, because we had a, 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 a someone who wrote a wonderful book about hospice and, as a guest several years ago, actually. And one of the things she said, you reinforced, and it really surprised me, uh, and that is how very religious people tend to face death. She said that um, the people who were most afraid as death was approaching were the most religious, you know, Christian religious, yeah. which which yeah. sounds counterintuitive. And when she would try to talk with them about their fears, they were all afraid they were going to be, you know, judged and they would fall short. And you then cite a study that indicates that very religious people tend to choose more aggressive attempts to prolong their lives here than do people that don't have any religion at all. Talk a little about it, that. It, it's an astounding thing. And I I don't have answers. I have ideas. There, this is a, a, a field of, of active research, but, you know, but um, we, we don't know. I do have hypotheses, though, and, and it has to do with openness versus certainty. And if I am certain that I know the answers, um, and this, yes, this is, this is characteristic of some uh, evangelical Christians, but also uh, very um, uh, orthodox uh, Jews or very um, uh, legally bound uh, uh, Muslims. So really? it's where you you know the answers because you've been taught the answers. You know the answers. So, and if the problem with knowing the answers is that it's hard to ask the ask questions because it's risky. And if I am facing the end of my life and I start asking the wrong questions, that's, you know, that, that may be very scary. That's very yeah, I scary. See. Um, I can see yeah. that would be frightening. Yeah. Now, yeah. let's suppose, let's just suppose that the truth about what happens after death is ascertainable 
and it is beyond wonderful. There is no judgment. There is no hell. There is only love, joy. Grandma's there, and she's young and beautiful. You're, all your pets you ever loved are there, and they're all young and beautiful, too. Let's suppose that's the reality, and you learn that that's true. Wouldn't that be comforting as you were getting closer I, to that? It's like going home I, for Christmas. I, <laughs> I think it would. I think it would. Um uh, I, I think it would. And I, I know you're going to tell me that's that's the truth. That's actually uh, what happens, actually. Right. Yeah, yeah, the, uh, the good news so, is there's no bad news. There's good news is there's no bad. And that's tremendous. And that fits with my hope. I, you know, I, I, right. I the the um, right. I think I think you're right. I think I think it would. But you still got to say goodbye. You still it's still like, For yes, I know while. it's wonderful. But the wonderful that I don't know is that it'll be there when I get there. I kind of like this wonderful that I got right here a little, a little bit. A little more comforting than a great, wonderful, almost certainty is what you're saying. Well, I think that's, I think that's, I, I think that's true. true. Because if we were all certain that it, what you said was exactly right, why are we staying alive here? Well, because there are reasons. We we don't need to get into that, but there are reasons. Yeah, yes, actually, yes, yes, yes. Actually, makes you more willing to stay than if you only uh, you know had happy happy hopes for it. But yeah. uh, uh, let, let's talk. Let's talk about you again, because we're coming toward the end of our time together. What do you want people to take away from our conversation today? What I want people to take away from the, the, our conversation is that thinking about your own death is okay, and it's not scary, and it's not um, frightening, and it won't make it happen. Uh, it's, that's, you, you gave that idea up when you were 10 years old, because kids often think, I can't think about or talk about bad things because that'll oh. make it happen. Okay, Lord. so, but, yeah, but, but, but. We 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 still feel that way. I can't think about it because it's too scary. That it's okay to think about it. That it's that it's important. It's probably the most important thing you will do as a person, as a physical human, uh, outside of being born. And you only get a chance to do it once. So that's so important. Let's emphasize that. This is something you have never done before. You may not know people who have done it recently. And mm-hmm. you, you, the, it's, you have one chance to get this right. And it is very important, I think, as you get closer to death. Am I right about this? It becomes more and more important that you really do it right. So planning for it, knowing what's going to happen, all of that's very important, it seems to me. I think it's absolutely important. And I think that's the that's where I think our American mindset could take us is that. And and I think that some, especially in in my generation, the aging baby boomer generation is figuring this out. Yes. If I want to be in control, I can be in control of this because I can make plans for it. You can't be in a total, total control. You know, the texting driver might take the the control out of your hands. I, I get that. But but that this is something you can plan for and and do um, the you know, you, I, I use the the uh, analogy of of the young the young couple who has just found out that they're pregnant and and are going to have a baby in eight in, uh, in now eight months from now. They've got eight months to plan. 
If you yes. had eight months to plan your diet, and they do wonderfully. The nursery gets done. Everything gets done. The yes. naming, the, the, the showers, all this kind of stuff. If you had eight months to plan your dying, you know, you could do a phenomenal job. Well, you've got all the time you need. Um, yes. You know, yes. and get some. The other thing that the other message is that thinking about your death if you if you really think about it personally, it will bring up emotions, and that's a good thing. And if experiencing some of that emotion now, I think makes it less frightening, make it less shocking when it's yes. staring you in the face. I, I yes. think that's really true. Yeah, no, that's very <laughs> profoundly said. I, I this is something. Thing which I wish I had been earlier preparing people for, and I'm going to try to do more. We'll have you back to talk about it again, because this is something which all of us need, I think, to give more thought to, especially as you come to understand, everyone, that your life really, truly is eternal. The, the, the physical death is an important event, but it's, it doesn't end anything. And so if that's the case, then you can plan for it without fear. And um, I have read some wonderful stories of people who have planned their deaths. Just, just in my research, I've come across them. And what beautiful times they had with loved ones they wouldn't have seen otherwise. Um, mm-hmm. they, they went, one fellow planned a celebration. Uh, that he, he didn't want anyone to get together after he died. He was dying, and he, but he felt pretty good. He had a celebration of his, of his, his life before his death and it was a huge party and he had a wonderful time and so did everybody else yes. I mean this is to make death a living part of our lives is I think the next frontier and and we're going to get there and it's going to be beautiful and it's going to take away so much fear and of course we know taking away fear is the whole point of all the work we do together beautifully said thank you now if your, your, your um, website is drjeffspeece.com. I'll put this in the notes, everyone, so you can spell it right, because it's not spelled the way it sounds. And so we'll put it in the notes. But what if someone said, you know, I need to talk to this man? Is there a way for them to get in touch with you, or do you accept that? Um, I I will, but what I would do is is do it through the website and the little contact page, the little contact link on the website. Uh, that that, That goes directly to my inbox. So my okay, pers- so, ideal. Yeah. That's ideal. Yes. That, thank you so much. And thank you for doing such a beautiful job with this topic. It's been fun. Has it been fun, everyone? I mean, I thought you thought, oh, no, what's she talking about now? But I think it's been fun and exciting. And thank you so much for being here, sir. I appreciate very much the work you do, and I appreciate what you did for us today. Well, thank you, Roberta. It's been a delight and enlightening for me. Uh, I'm, I think I might even do something crazy like listen to some of your other guests and then learn a little more. <laughs> this is such a big, such a big, happy crowd. We have yes. we really have had some wonderful, wonderful people tell me all the time they don't listen for me. They listen for the guests, which, frankly, there could be no better compliment than that, I have to say, because right, I try not to get in the way. But thank you, sir, and have a wonderful, wonderful evening. And everyone, this is has been Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. I'm so glad you could be with us today. Please never forget that you are a powerful, eternal being. You never began and you never will end. And when you really get what that means, it's going to change everything in your life for the better. Next week, our guest will be the wonderful Seek Reality favorite, Dr. R. Craig Hogan, who will be here for, believe it or not, the 28th 
time. Craig has been very productive during the past few years. He's been, he has, you know, just wrote, There is Nothing But Mind and Experiences, which we discussed here with him just a couple months back. That This new book of his is an extraordinary summary of what researchers now know is true about consciousness and about how reality works. If you haven't yet read it, you're, <laughs> you're in for a treat. And next week, we're going to be talking about his second edition of Your Eternal Self, which is the 12-year-old groundbreaking book that led to my meeting him, being encouraged by him, becoming a friend of his, and we are very tight friends to this day. And then he encouraged me to write The Fun of Dying, find out what really happens next. Craig Hogan is a brilliant man, and he is the best developed man spiritually that I have ever met who is still in a body. I can't wait to hear what he's up to now, so please do join us next week. And this week, our guest has been Dr. Jeff Spies, who has been talking about how we can best manage the final stages of this side of life. Dr. Spies is the author of a wonderful, terrific little book called Dying with Ease, a compassionate guide for making wiser end-of-life decisions. You know, I, as you can imagine, I read a lot of books because I try to read every single book we talk about on Seek Reality. And I can say nothing better about any book than that it should be in every home. And this one should be. We all should know these things that Dr. Spies talks about. And his book is so easy to read and comfortable to read. Not scary, nothing icky in it. But it's, it's essential information because everybody does die. Every family watches its older generation pass. And sometimes we have to help younger family members and loved ones die as well. This is an essential, important, and as we know, very happy time of our lives. Mainstream science still stupidly insists that death is the end, when in fact, it's only a greater beginning. So Western society still to this day treat death as something that should be secret, maybe shameful. But as we come at last to know more and more broadly that death is just the return to our much more wonderful, real, eternal lives, it's past time for us to begin to treat the dying process as a celebration of love and eternal life that it ought to be. And Dr. Spies' terrific little book, Dying with Ease, is a great step in that direction. As you know, my own books are Liberating Jesus, My Thomas, The Fun of Dying, The Fun of Staying in Touch, The Fun of Growing Forever, The Fun of Living Together, and very soon, The Fun of Loving Jesus, Embracing the Christianity that Jesus Taught. For children, there's The Fun of Meeting Jesus, and you can order all of these books except the children's book through bookstores or on Amazon.com. The adult books are all also available as audiobooks. Now, if you want to talk about anything, my books, what we just said today, anything at all, if you have questions, if you ever want to talk to any to me about anything at all, you can always contact me through the green contact block on robertagrimes.com. I do answer every email. It can take almost a week sometimes, but as long as you have given me your correct email address, you will have an answer from me. Past episodes of Seek Reality are available on webtalkradio.net, on realrevolutionradio.com, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and many other stations, actually, including those in the wonderful Dream Vision 7 radio family. What they do is that they run um, these podcasts, actually, as as radio programs months after they are played elsewhere, and they have actually a very large audience there. I am so grateful, so grateful to the Dream Vision 7 radio family. And more and more people tell me now that they just listen 
every week through the Seek Reality app that you can find for free in the iTunes app store. You can get in early on some of these conversations by just checking out my blog at robertagrimes.com. I use those weekly blog posts to work through some of the same issues we talk about here, but often I'm working through them much earlier than they ever make it to, to seek reality. We have more space for analysis, of course, and discussion um, in the comments section of the blog post. So if you're curious, just come check us out. If you sign up for my emails on robertagrimes.com, you'll get them automatically on Sunday mornings. Meanwhile, everyone, this has been Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Please enjoy and please make the most of this coming week in our one reality, always knowing that you are a powerful, eternal being, and you, most of all in the entire universe, you are perfectly loved. You've been listening to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Roberta blogs and answers questions at robertagrimes.com. Join us every week as we explore what the afterlife evidence and modern science combine to tell us is true about the one reality we all share. Knowing the truth changes everything.